First day of breath sabbatical, first Sunday, and we're already forgetting the offering. All right. Who knows what he's going to come back to at the end of the summer here. Man. All right. Well, good morning. Uh, it's good to see you on Memorial Day weekend. I know a lot of us scatter for the weekend, and some of you might be in town visiting here uh, as well, and don't necessarily live here in, in, the, in the area. So I just want to say welcome to you, and happy Memorial Day weekend. My name is Levi. I'm also one of the pastors here, and occasionally I, I preach, not real often, but occasionally I preach here. And, um, and actually, because our lead pastor, uh, Brett, is, is on sabbatical for the summer, I'm going to be preaching just a little bit more often. So there you go. Um, and uh, Pastor Thomas will be taking um, much more of that uh, preaching role this summer. So um, just looking forward to seeing what God has for us. It's going to feel a little bit different, and, and that's okay. And we'll just see what the Lord's, what the Lord's doing here at Christ Redeemer Church. So um, anyway, as I have had opportunity to preach lately, what I've been doing is um, I've been preaching through a sermon called The Empowered Church. And it's a, it's a sermon series basically just about the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. And specifically how that relates to you and me and how it relates to the church as a whole. And one of the reasons for a sermon series on the Holy Spirit is not the only reason, but one of the reasons is just ignorance. And we just don't really think about the Holy Spirit a lot in our, in our circles. Uh, we think, I think, more often about God the Father and God the Son, and there's something about that that's easier, more tangible to, to grab a hold of in a lot of ways. But then we tend to sort of ignore the Holy Spirit because he's sort of mysterious, and we don't know what exactly he's doing all the time. And he's kind of maybe like the processor of your computer, you're thankful it's there. You know it's important. It's powering a lot of information, but you just never think about it, ever. And that's sort of how we approach the Holy Spirit a little bit. And the problem is, he's God. He's the third member of the Trinity. It's not Father, Son, and Holy Scriptures, as, as maybe our default might be. It's Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And so it's just kind of trying to fill that out a little bit better for us, understanding who, who is the Holy Spirit? What do we believe about him? What is he doing? What has he done? And uh, that's kind of what we're going after. Francis Chan actually wrote a book called The Forgotten God, uh, kind of grabbing that idea that he's kind of a forgotten part of the Trinity, which, by the way, I would commend the book to you. I read it. It's a short read. It's not really super deep, but it'll, it's, a good, it's a good read for sure. Um, so we want to engage in this subject. We're, we're, we're going after trying to understand better the person and the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives and in our church. So um, let's pray, and then we'll, we'll jump in, into today's uh, topic here this morning. <clears throat> well, we do uh, just want to recognize this morning, Holy Spirit, that you are here with us. You're our, you, you help us. You're our helper. Um, you're speaking. You're active. You're not a passive person. But you're actively working in us, God. And you're working in our lives. And you have something to communicate to us this morning. Thank you for that. Thank you that you do stir us up. Thank you that you do stir us out of our sleep and our slumber that we get into at times. Thank you that you comfort us when we need comforting. And we just pray this morning that you would help us to see you better. That we might 
be changed in that process. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, today we're going to focus on a very simple question. Not a big one. And that is, how does a person get right with God? How does a person get right with God? That's not a big question, is it? No, it's one of the most significant questions we can ever ask, is how does a person actually get right with God? You could actually say the question in other ways. You could say, how does a person become a follower of Jesus? How does a person just generally become a Christian? And what I mean is, I don't mean it at the, like the surface level. There's, there's one level we could say, well, you, you profess the name of Jesus. You get baptized, you know. You, you, you do something, and, and, and that... And those are like outward signs. I understand that there's something there. You just profess, you, you put your faith in Jesus and, and speak it out. But the thing about like that level is you can do that genuinely in faith, and you can do that not really in faith. There's, there, that's a, that's a, surf, that's a, a surf, it's important, but it's a higher level. What I'm after is the deeper what happens. How does a person actually get right? with God at a spiritual level. What's going, on, what's going on underneath the surface? And the reason I'm just thinking about that question, the reason we've gone here in the series is because the last time I preached, it was on Acts chapter 1 and 2, and the Spirit has, had, had fallen on the church and filled God's church, and now the church is going out and proclaiming the name of Jesus, calling people to repentance, which is just a call to turn away from your sin, you're going one way, you're sinning, you're in control of your life, you're an autonomous person, recognizing all the, all the ways that that's wrong, and turning to God. This idea of turning to Jesus in repentance. The church is going out, people are, are repenting, but what's happening? Like, what's happening underneath all that? What's happening at the most foundational level in a person's life when they, when they repent and turn to Christ? So there's a bit of a logical question in there in my, in my mind. And one of the best passages to go to for that is John chapter 3. And so that's where we're going to go this morning. John chapter 3. Um, you can turn on your Bible or grab your Bible. Or if you need a Bible, you just don't have one here this morning, you can raise your hand and we can get one to you for sure. Um, I want you to be able to follow along. But we're going to go to John chapter 3. where Jesus has a conversation with a man named Nicodemus. And we're going to, the way we're going to travel through this this morning is Nicodemus makes three statements at three different times he's, he speaks to Jesus. And we're just going to pivot off of those moments. For, the, for those of you who like some sense of organization and how are we working, Nicodemus makes three statements. And that is going to help us answer the question, how does a person really get right with God at the deepest level? What happens there? So John chapter 3, starting in verse 1. And let me just say the first point here, and then we'll read it actually. How does a person get right with God? The first way we're going to answer that question is how a person doesn't get right with God. It's the first answer, first thing to clarify, I think, this morning. And a lot of people will fall into this category this morning. 
I don't know about necessarily here, but just in general, a lot of people fall into this first category of how a person gets right with God. It's not by your religious effort. Just clarify that right out, right out of the gate. It's not by religious effort. Look at John 3, verse 1. <clears throat> now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So first off, who is this Nicodemus character? He shows up three times in the book of John, so he kind of, he keeps on showing up here. And Nicodemus is a historical person. He, he, he lived and had this conversation, but Nicodemus is also a representative person of, of you and, and me. Partway through the story, Jesus actually changes the way he addresses Nicodemus from a singular you, Nicodemus, one person, to a plural you, all you Nicodemuses. And that's John's way of inviting the reader to look at, to look at that text and see, your, see yourself in the story. So as we read about Nicodemus, as we understand more about him, there's something about us in, in him that we want to be able to see this morning. But historically, Nicodemus, he, he was a man, and he was, he was a Pharisee. He knew the law very well. He was a very religious man. Uh, and he was part of uh, the ruling council called the Sanhedrin, which was a, which was a, which was a group of um, very powerful leaders in the Jewish community that were given a lot of autonomy and a lot of authority to govern um, regarding Jewish matters, strictly Jewish matters, religious issues, things going on within, within the Jewish community, while Rome would, would sit, you know, from a distance. And they were fine with that, because take care of all that stuff. We don't want to mess with that. Just keep the political climate calm. That's all they really cared about. So the Sanhedrin had a real powerful place um, within the Jewish community, and Nicodemus was on this council. <clears throat> he was also probably quite well known, respected, probably wealthy, probably a wealthy man. He was not just a leader, he was a leader among leaders. He stood out in a lot of ways, educated, and he was considered a true Jew. Like, this is, you want to know what a, a true, devout Jew is? Look at Nicodemus. That's something that he's a model citizen in a lot of ways. And with all this, he has a bit of a reputation, reputation to maintain, so that's why he comes to Jesus at nighttime. Like, one of, one of the reasons he shows up at night is he just doesn't want the attention uh, that he might get uh, if people saw him engaging in kind of a friendly conversation with Jesus. But nighttime for John actually has a double meaning, which, which is more significant than the time of day. For, for John, he uses the word night more as an indication of uh, the condition of someone's soul. It's nighttime for those who can't see Jesus for who he really is. It's nighttime. Uh, famously, it happens in the story of Judas right after the Last Supper. If you remember the Last Supper, Judas gets up to leave. He gets up to go betray Jesus, and John includes at the very end of that, he says, and it was night for Judas. Judas was failing to see who Jesus was. Nicodemus, we already know now, is he's not going to really see Jesus for who he really is. It's nighttime. So let's look back, let's look back at the verse again, maybe just part of verse 2, kind of knowing Nicodemus a little bit. What does he say? 
Verse 2, he says, Rabbi, a very respectful term. I mean, he's coming at him like a peer, not, not lording over Jesus, his own authority. Rabbi, peer-to-peer, friendship. Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher, come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. He's complimenting Jesus. He's coming at, he's, he's approaching Jesus in a very friendly manner. So, when Jesus says in response, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Might seem kind of abrupt, might seem kind of like a weird response, considering what Nicodemus just said. What is Jesus saying there? It is abrupt. He's basically saying, Nicodemus, you actually have no place with God. You have no place in God's kingdom, which would have been a very much an affront to Nicodemus right in that moment. And you got to think, man, why would Jesus say that? <laughs> he seems to be coming in pretty friendly. He seems to be coming in as a pretty nice guy. And the first thing Jesus does is puts this front, or puts a barrier between Nicodemus and himself. Why wouldn't Jesus just look at Nicodemus and overlook something he's seeing here? I mean, he's Nicodemus. He's, he's kind of a big deal. He's a good guy to have on your team. Jesus could have said, you know what? We have some differences, probably. Um, but honestly, all I have is like fishermen. I got a tax collector. And I think I got a guy who wants to betray me. Like, so I could use somebody, uh, somebody on the inside. I could use somebody who, who, um, who's got some, like, some clout, some leverage, some power here. And Jesus completely blows right past that possible temptation. I think I would be tempted in that way. I'd be like, well, okay, we'll work out the differences. Jesus just... Right in his face. Oh, you have no place in the kingdom of God. Sorry, Nicodemus. Why would he do that? I just think Jesus loves Nicodemus too much to let him persist in kind of his ignorant view of Jesus. We're not far from that John 3.16 passage, right? God so loved the world. Love, love in John 3 is... Yes, all right. Wake everybody up. John 3, there's love in this passage. It's, it's, it's in the air, as they say. So I think Jesus has this sort of loving interest in Nicodemus, and it compels Nicodemus to expose his very low view of Jesus. He thinks he's praised Jesus. He thinks he's honored Jesus, calls him a rabbi. But when you read, or in what he's doing, sorry, what he's doing there is he's saying, when you... Rabbi, we know that you've come from God. What he's, what he's associating Jesus with is you've come from God just like Moses came from God, just like Jeremiah came from God, these other prophets, these people that have spoken, spoken to us uh, throughout history. You've come in that, in that way. And so for Nicodemus, this is high praise. But when you read John chapter 1 and you see the Word became flesh and that Jesus is the eternal God, the creator of the universe, the, 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 the one and only Son of God— you realize Nicodemus has way undershot Jesus' identity. He's totally missed it. As high praise as he might have thought he'd given him, he's totally missed it. It would be like me, or maybe like you, um, meeting Michael Jordan for the first time ever. Maybe the only time ever it would be. And I never have. But it'd be like, it'd be like meeting him and saying, Michael Jordan, you are a basketball player. And that would be correct. Or we're a basketball player. And that would be a correct thing to say. 
Absolutely. You're a basketball player like I'm a basketball player. Well, now that's wrong. You know, you've totally missed it. That's, now you've revealed an ignorance here. And this is six-time world champion. This is MVP. This is arguably the best basketball player the world has ever seen. I say arguably, so for those of you who disagree, there you go. I don't think it's an argument. But, um, but that, that comparison reveals the problem. And Nicodemus has kind of implied a comparison here. He reveals that it's not even on his radar that Jesus could actually be the savior of the world. The Messiah, the true king of kings, the Lord of lords. Jesus to Nicodemus is a guy who would be a good guy to have on your team. A good guy to know. And there's something for us just to stop right there and reflect on, I think. And just ask ourselves, man, is Jesus just like simply an interesting character? Is he a guy who has come alongside your life to offer good advice, you know, to kind of help you out of your hole a little bit? Is he somebody who um, just, he's here with good advice. He, ha- he helps me with my anger problem. He helps me with my drinking problem. He helps me not feel so lonely in life. Like, is that it? Is that who Jesus is? Because if that's all he is, if he's a companion to kind of help you through, well, it's a, it's, he does those things, he does come and heal. He does come and, and break uh, strongholds in our lives. But he's more interested in a deeper problem. That's what he wants to get at first. And so we have to, I think, just be mindful of having kind of a, a shallow view, view of Jesus ourselves. And even as we talk to somebody else about Christ and just share, like, why you have a hope and faith in Jesus, just know, don't present it as like a low view of him. It's not, he's not just a helper. He's not just a guy showing up to give you a hand in life. He's more than that. I was reminded this week of a conversation I had years ago at my previous church with a friend of mine in my previous church in Chicago. And um, he, was, he was trying to get his buddy to come, to come to a church service sometime. And one of his ways, the way he was trying to pitch the idea or get his buddy to come was, dude, it's just a better way to live life. Come and, come and hear some sermons, man. It's just good stuff. And I kind of cringed at when I, when I heard it and, and was disturbed by it because it's, it's, it's not that. If that's all it is, then you're kind of coming in like Nicodemus. You're kind of coming in the same way of he's, he's sort of a peer. <clears throat> so I think that's why Jesus doesn't commend Nicodemus on what he sees. He just says, yeah, no, you don't got it yet. You don't know who I am quite yet. You have no place with God at this time. So then, if being a religious moral person does not make you right with God, like Nicodemus, like we have a default mode to be religious and good and get right with God that way, if that doesn't save you, if that doesn't make you right with God, then what does? Jesus goes on, he says, you must be born again, right? That's what he's saying. Born again. Uh, Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God means your core identity, your, 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 your family, your heritage, the deepest part of who you are. That has to change. When you're born, you just are. Your, your whole identity changes, and Jesus is getting deep here. And how is that possible? Point number two is just simply by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is where we have to go. Let's, let's read on. Read what Nicodemus says next here.
Nicodemus answers him, saying, How can a man be born when he is old? You know when you feel defensive in an argument, like someone's pinned you to a corner, it kind of got you in a corner a little bit, you sort of look for anything that you can throw at the person to see what'll stick. I just wonder if Nicodemus is sort of like feeling a little cornered here, and he gets super literal with Jesus because clearly that's not what Jesus means. He's not saying you can curl up in a ball and get back into your, you know, be small again and be born again. I just wonder if maybe Nicodemus is a little defensive here at this point. He says, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not, so he kind of engages him on the question. Even if you could be reborn in your mother's, from your mother's womb, you're still, it's still flesh giving birth to flesh. It's not, it still wouldn't work, even if theoretically you could make it happen. It has to be spirit, um, giving birth to spirit. And he finishes in, or in verse 7 says, Do not marvel that I said this to you. You must be born again. And here is where we get to our answer. How does a person get right with God? How does it happen at the deepest level? Well, you must be born of water and spirit. And there's a theological word for that, and it's called regeneration. We actually, um, Dana had us kind of look at that in Titus this morning. I didn't realize he was going to have that up there, but it's this word called regeneration. And regeneration might be a word that you're familiar with. It might be a word that you're not familiar with. Um, It might be a word that you've heard, and at one time you kind of knew what was going on there, and now you've completely forgotten what exactly regeneration is. But it's what's happening here in John 3, and it's a word that only shows up Two times in the New Testament. So the word itself doesn't show up real often, but, the, but the, uh, the theme of regeneration is really all over in Scripture. But I want to put the Titus passage up again and just look at it um, and, and try to, we're going to try to understand better what is regeneration because that is what Jesus is talking about right here. In Titus chapter 3, He says, For we ourselves were once foolish, we were once disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of the works done by us in righteousness. So Nicodemus, listen up. It's not because of your religious pedigree. It's not because of where you came from. It's not because of your family. But according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration. There's the word. And the renewal of the Holy Spirit, linking linking these things together. This is how you are saved at the deepest level. This is how a person is made right with God. God's Spirit comes and breathes life into a dead person, actually breathes life. You see, in the word regeneration, you see regenesis almost. Genesis being beginnings. Reminds you of Genesis chapter 1, the first, the first uh, just the opening of the Bible. Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, where it says that the earth was without form, and it was void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And then who was there? The Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So that means the same Spirit that was there at creation, initially, 
powerfully creating is now the same spirit who creates again. He creates new life. Not with any less power. Like perfectly, powerfully, miraculously. Something we could never dream of doing. Just, a, a, just making something happen out of nothing. And that is the spirit that is here now. Saving. Giving people new hearts, new identities. Recreating people who were once enslaved and helpless and dead. And making them alive in Christ Jesus. A definition of regeneration, for those of you who like definitions, clearly articulated. Here's one from a a man named Richard Lovelace. He says this, Regeneration is the recreation of spiritual life in those who are dead in trespasses and sins. It occurs in the depths of the human heart at the roots of consciousness infusing new life which is capable of spiritual awareness, perception, and response that is no longer alienated from the life of God. The conscious effects of regeneration, so here's the stuff that we see on the outside, are summed up in things like conversion, a response of turning toward God in repentant repentant faith, which accompanies the hearing of the gospel. So something has to happen first before you can even You need to be regenerated before you can even turn and repent of sin or even believe in the name of Jesus. Something has to happen. You need life before you can even recognize it. Augustine said it this way. He had a picture. St. Augustine had a picture to describe this. And and what his picture was, was that all of humanity, when you're born, a person is born with their face bent toward the earth. This is kind of the, the picture that he would give. You're born with your face bent toward the earth. And so this is how, this is how we're born naturally. What we see is, is our feet. We see the ground. And we, we bump into each other. And we talk about what we see. And we try to make sense of life. But the whole time we're looking down. We're looking down at the ground. That's all we can, all we can see together. Meanwhile, God is above, gloriously displaying his gospel through Jesus gloriously displaying his word, but nobody can even look up to see that we don't have the capacity. So Augustine said, this is our natural fallen condition. This is who we are. And we're trying to make sense of God, and you've got an idea, and you've got an idea, and we're all looking at the ground together, and then until a person is regenerated, until the Spirit fills a person up and and causes them and gives them life, that's the only time they can straighten up. That's when they can straighten up, look up, and see God, and understand for the first time who they are, who God is, what true beauty looks like, what true glory looks like, what true wisdom looks like. None of that can happen until this happens. And this doesn't happen until the Spirit comes in and causes it to happen. And when it does, you're a completely different person. You can't help but be a completely different person. You just see God for who he is, and that changes you. It just changes you immediately. Many of you have experienced this. This regenerating work, something that seems so foolish. Now suddenly, how else could it be? I can't understand my life apart from, from God, from, from his son. I can't, I can't understand my life apart from his word. It's just the spirit regenerating. The other spot that it shows up is in Matthew nineteen twenty-eight, And we're actually not going to go there. But if you want to make note of it, if you want to look at it later, Matthew nineteen twenty-eight is the other point where... Um, the word, at least, regeneration shows up. It gets translated maybe in your Bible like new creation or new world. 
the same word as regeneration. It's just grabbing that whole idea that there's a new creation happening here. It's, rege- it's regeneration. It's the, the Spirit is creating something new. And, and in, in the Matthew passage, it's more global. It's more like um, the, the big final picture that we'll get to see and experience someday when the new creation is, is, uh, is fully manifested. But it's already happening under the radar in people's lives right now. So it's happening at a personal level. And slowly but surely, it's happening, or it's happening all over the world, but it's happening in kind of an invisible, hidden way. So, back to Nicodemus in, in John 3. This is what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about regeneration. <clears throat> and there are, uh, there are many who would look at this and say, well, when Jesus talks about being born of water and spirit... Well, he's talking about baptism. He's talking about, it's water. There's water. He must be talking about baptism. And the, there's a lot of problems with that, I think. But one of the problems, just right off the top, is that Nicodemus would have no idea what Jesus is talking about if, he, if what he meant was baptism in Jesus' name. He wouldn't know what Jesus is talking about. And we know from later in the passage, when Jesus kind of rebukes Nicodemus, like, Nicodemus, you should know what I'm talking about here, that, well... So it can't be baptism because Nicodemus, it wouldn't have even been on the radar to think that Jesus is talking about being baptized in his name. It must have meant something else to Nicodemus for Jesus to be able to say, you should know what I'm talking about, Nicodemus. You should know. So what is Jesus talking about? He's talking about passages like Ezekiel 36, which Nicodemus would have known very, very well. He's a teacher of the law, knew the Old Testament better than anybody in this room would have known the Old Testament. So uh, Ezekiel 36 says this. He says, I will sprinkle, I think the words are up here. It says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart. This is new creation stuff. And I will give you a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So Nicodemus knows this passage very well. This is a, this is a, this is a hopeful passage. He knows it, but he doesn't know it. Like he knows it here, but he doesn't know it's for him. He doesn't realize he's the one who needs the cleansing. He needs to insert his name in this passage. It needs to say something to him like, I'll sprinkle you, I'll sprinkle on you, Nicodemus. And you shall be clean, Nicodemus, from all your uncleanness, from all your idols. I will give you Levi, or you, or you. This is, this is personal. And Nicodemus has not, that hasn't hit him yet. There's this, he is a religious man. He is a, he is a Jew among Jews. He's got, he's got, pedigree. He's somebody who, who, who people listen to. He doesn't need the washing. At least that's what he thinks, and, and that's what he's missing here in this passage. He absolutely needs the washing. He absolutely needs the cleansing. And just like your natural birth, which you didn't have anything to do with when you were a baby, you didn't. Ask any mother who's given birth in here, by the way, and they'll tell you that they did all the work. The baby was just along for the ride, basically. Just like that birth, when you're a baby, you had nothing to do with. So 
to your spiritual birth. Like you have nothing to do with it. You don't, you don't will yourself to be born. You can't, you can't make yourself be born. Which again, I would say why Jesus isn't talking strictly about baptism. You can't just baptize someone into, into being born again. You can't, you can't do that. You can't control the spirit in that way. And then that's the next thing that Jesus says. He gets at this, this controlling the spirit issue. He says in verse 8, if you look at it, the wind, it blows where it wishes. You hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from. You don't know where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. The wind and the spirit are the same, are the same word. Jesus is playing off of words there. But he's saying, it's just, he's just describing the character of the Spirit to some degree. He's just saying, you don't know where it comes from. It's, it's mysterious. You don't understand everything about it. He's uncontrollable. He's tremendously powerful. He's invisible. And yet you see his effects all over, just like the wind. You see the effects of the wind all over. Jesus is saying, don't try to control the Spirit. Don't try to harness the Spirit. He's uncontrollable. And again, maybe it's just a, a point for us to stop and to think for ourselves. Like, you can't control the Spirit. You can't, you can't force the Spirit to, to come upon someone and to regenerate them. You can't make something like that happen. You have to be in step with the Spirit. Walk with the Spirit. Look for how the Spirit might be moving. Even Jesus kind of re- restricts himself. In John six forty four. he says, Nobody can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him in. So Jesus has kind of like, he doesn't get ahead of the Spirit. And we don't want to get ahead of the Spirit as we wish and hope to see people come to the same kind of salvation that you have experienced. Richard Lovelace says it this way, uh, same guy. um, He says, Jesus' whole ministry reveals a controlled dignity which did not force persons beyond the moving of the Holy Spirit, detectable in their words and actions, so that in bringing them to commitment, even the Son of God waited upon the Spirit. So if Jesus restricted himself to let the Spirit move, I think, I think that's a good example for us to follow, to understand we have limitation. We, we, um, we testify of the grace of Jesus in our lives. We love people really well. We're eager to share the reason we have the hope. We're faithful missionaries living on mission. Those kinds of things are all part of what we do, but honestly, take the pressure off of thinking you have to seal the deal. Like, you have to make sure someone, you know, get them in a headlock and make them say, Jesus, this is not, this is not what we have to do. There is no reason to do that. It doesn't actually do anything at all. It doesn't do, it doesn't help anything. We don't manipulate people to believe this message. We don't, we don't manipulate our children to believe this message. We don't do that here in our Sunday services, trying to play on people's emotions, hoping that somehow the Spirit will, will, will work in that because it's, we can't control the Spirit. So just, there's some freedom, I think, that that does kind of inject in our lives too. I, I think, honestly, the, the pressure and the discouragement of, of trying to see someone uh, understand who Jesus really is and believe, a lot of that pressure can just get allevi- alleviated when you know it's, it's God's work to do. 
you just be joyful, honestly. Just enjoy your salvation. Let that flow out of you. Let the love flow out of you and, and be faithful to that. But trust, man, the Spirit has to do that. God has to actually change a person's heart. God has to change a person's life. So keep working hard, but understand your limits. <clears throat> one, of the, uh, one of the things that we've done to get through the winter months with small children, is uh, I've been reading the Chronicles of Narnia series to my boys. And uh, this winter, at one point we finished The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. I don't know if you've read these books or not, but The Voyage of the Dawn Treader is one of the stories in that series. And, and in that story, there's a, there's a boy named Eustace. And Eustace is the most annoying, aggravating, selfish, self-centered boy in the world. And he somehow ends up in this magical land of Narnia. And he is just painful to listen to and painful to watch if you've watched the movie. And at one point, Eustace stumbles across a, a pile of treasure. And he loves the treasure. He sees the treasure. He runs over and puts a, a big bracelet on his arm and, 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 and lets it sit there. And he, he's just kind of looking at all the gold and he's sitting in it and he just lays down and he then ends up falling asleep just dreaming of getting everything he wanted in life, getting everything, all this treasure, all this power. He falls asleep that way. And when he wakes up, he finds out that his inward greed has manifested itself outwardly and he becomes a dragon. He wakes up and he is this hideous monster, this, this dragon. And that, that thing that he put on his, that bracelet that he put on his arm is now pinching him and, and, and hurting him and and, and he realizes over time that he is, he, well, I'm, I'm not even a human anymore. Right? And he's isolated and he's ugly. And, he's, and, he's, and it starts to dawn on him how ugly and, and, and horrible looking he really is. And he just doesn't know how it'll ever change. He doesn't know how it's ever going to be different. And he meets Aslan. And Aslan, if you know the stories, he's, a, he's the Christ character. He represents kind of a Christ character. He's a lion and... and he brings Eustace up to, Eustace the dragon, up to, a, uh, up to a mountain where there's a well with fresh clean water in the well and, 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 and offers Eustace to, to bathe that hurting arm in, in the water. And Eustace wants to, but he's a big ugly dragon. He can't fit in that well. There's no way he can get in that well. And so he's frustrated and dejected and and, and uh, Aslan says, well, you'll have to be undressed. And Eustace lights up because he's like, oh, yeah, like a snake. A snake can shed their skin. I bet I can shed my skin too. And so he starts to, he's got these big dragon claws, you know, and he starts to, to, to rip the skin off of, his, off of his body. And he's able to do it and he throws it to the side and, and he looks and he's got another skin on his body. And he's like, oh, I'm layered. So he pulls another layer off and he does this again. And every time, he's still just a dragon in dragon skin. Three times in a row. And then Aslan steps in and he just says, no, you have to let me undress you. And I'll just pick it up from there. This is from the perspective of Eustace. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. 
The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. Well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off. Just as I thought I'd done myself the other three times, only they hadn't hurt. And there it was, lying on the grass. Only ever so much thicker and darker and more novelly looking than the others had been. And there was I, as smooth and soft as a peeled switch, and smaller than I had been. And then he caught hold of me. I didn't like that much, for I was very tender underneath now that I had no skin on. And he threw me into the water, and it stung like anything, but only for a moment. After that, it became perfectly delicious. And as soon as I started swimming and splashing, I found that all the pain had gone from my arm. And then I saw why. I'd turned into a boy again. After a bit, the lion took me out and dressed me in new clothes. And this is just a picture of regeneration. It's a picture of the power of the Spirit. The Spirit comes in, comes in at an invisible level and peels away all that flesh, all that, all that sin, all that death that you've, you've ended up in, that you've found yourself in. And there was no possible way for you to get out of it. Even a righteous man like Nicodemus is just a dragon needing to be undressed. And that's what you are, and that's what I am. We need to be undressed by Jesus. So, what's Nicodemus to think about all this? He asks yet another good question here now. A much better question, I should say. In verse 9, he just says, how can these things be? Like, how can this, how can this happen? How, can this, how is this even possible? And I just want to jump down to Jesus' response at the end of the passage here in verse 14 and 15. Jesus says this, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And Jesus responds just by pointing to his death that is coming, his death on the cross when the Son of Man will be lifted up on a cross, a very offensive thing, and he'll bear the punishment of Nicodemus' sin and all of his uncleanness and yours and mine. He'll take it upon himself. He'll, he'll bear the wrath of God the Father. He will pay the penalty. He's preparing Nicodemus for what's going to happen, what he's going to see. And that's what makes us clean. That's how it's possible. That's how the Spirit can come and clean us. It's through the blood of Jesus. You can't add anything to it. It's already, it's, it's done, it's finished, it's accomplished simply in Christ. And he gets the glory. We don't get to boast, we don't get to brag about it, we don't get to, we don't get to say what we've done. It is all in Christ. And it's applied to us through the power of the Holy Spirit. Not because we have been fervent in our belief, not because we're, we're super spiritual, not because we're smarter and more discerning and we just see things, because the Spirit has come in and made a dead person alive. That's the only reason you can believe that Jesus Christ is the sufficient payment for your sin. It's the only reason you can have a hope in him this morning is the Spirit has come and changed you.
hopefully. Or maybe he hasn't. Maybe that's still something, there's a, there's a pondering in your spirit, there's just some thinking, and you've observed it for years or months or weeks or whatever it might be, and, and it's still not really what you believe. Then, man, let's just pray grace for you that God, by the power of his spirit, would come and, and regenerate you, cause you to see who Jesus really is. And once you've been reborn, it doesn't change. You can't be unborn. It's, you're, you've, you had nothing to do with your salvation. He came in and regenerated you. And he'll keep you. He'll hold on to you. He will persevere in you and cause you to persevere in your faith. Jesus, even if, even if you go through a season of struggling with, with God, if you are regenerated, if you are a son or a daughter of Jesus, can't be undone. And there's a, a confidence and a joy in that that... that uh, I think that we can just always celebrate. I just want to close with uh, the, one of the verses in, um, in Charles Wesley's hymn, Charles Wesley's hymn, And Can It Be? There's a, there's a few verses, or a few lines in, in one of the verses here that I want, to, I want to read. And then we'll actually sing this song here this morning as well. But it's this, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast, bound in sin and nature's night, Thine eye diffused a quickening ray, and I woke, and the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, and my heart was free, and I rose, I went forth, and followed thee. Let's pray. Well, Heavenly Father, we are, we are only made right when we recognize that we're only made right with you, God, when we recognize that there's nothing we can do to fix our problem. No amount of good work or religious effort or going to church services or being a good person, none of that stuff will be enough. It wasn't enough for Nicodemus. It's not enough for us. We just recognize the need for rebirth and new creation and supernatural work that we, we just can't do and we can't control. And we, and we just thank you for the work of the Spirit that comes and restores us, gives us life where there was no life, sets us free where we are all bound up in sin. Thank you for this powerful work. Thank you for Jesus who bore all of that punishment that we deserve bore it all upon himself God and I just pray Jesus that this would really would cause us to not boast and to be really sensitive to us ever thinking that we are something more than we really are and we just confess God that we do that sometimes we do think that somehow we've contributed or we compare ourselves to others and think that somehow we are uh, we're better or maybe not quite in need of as much grace. And that's just not true, Lord. And so we want to turn away from thoughts like that and ideas like that, Jesus, and just embrace you, embrace the cross, be thankful people who love you, who love walking with you. And we just thank you so much for this, Jesus. And I do pray, God, for those who maybe are here today or, or even you know, listen to the sermon online, stumble across it or something like that. I just pray, God, that you're powerful spirit 
would work new life in everyone who's hearing this this morning, hearing this right now, work new life in us, cause us to be resurrected in our spirits and see you for who you really are. We thank you for this work, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.